When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and how those subjects bubbled up into our popular storytelling. I am very excited to be here. Today is actually Halloween 2020. I am sitting here in the podcast studio with my Imperial Pumpkin Ale, feeling all things spooky and scary, ready to close out our spooky season series of episodes that we've done this entire October. And let me tell you, folks, it's been a lot of fun covering the movies that we have covered. Just to recap, we started with Pirates of the Caribbean, a action-adventure swashbuckler slash ghost story. We then did Hereditary, a deep psychological, more classic Stanley Kubrick Shining-esque horror movie about a family going insane and being corrupted by demons. Then we, what did we do last week? Oh, uh, <laughs> the Rocky Horror we Picture Show. We did the time show. warp again last week. I know, I time warped it right out of my mind, apparently. We did Rocky Horror Picture Show, a classic, and we're going to bring it home. Now, this movie that we're going to talk in, about, and if you've been following us on social media, which I assume you have, you know what we're going to talk about, has been on our slate to talk about as our official Halloween special for years, we've been wanting to talk about this movie. The enigma, the riddle, the puzzle, the perplexing, the bizarre, the transformational, the movie that seems to have everything in it that says, that says so much, and some actually accuse of saying nothing at all, Donnie Darko. And in true Midnight Myth form, this most uh, official of Halloween specials is coming out for you on November 1st. But, uh, you know, that's sometimes how it works. Uh, and we chose to do this at Halloween for a number of reasons. It does have kind of a spooky vibe, but it also takes place in the lead up to Halloween and a Halloween festival. And Halloween is positioned as the end of the world. So who knows? 2020 has been a very strange year for a lot of us, and we're about to set our clocks back on Halloween night, and all kinds of things could go haywire. Uh, but we are hoping that it's not the end of the world this Halloween. But when will this all end? 28 days, 6 hours, 42 minutes, 12 seconds. Why are you wearing that silly podcast suit, Laurel? Why are you wearing that stupid man suit? <laughs> oh, God, we're already doing it. I can't wait to talk about this movie. We have so much to get into, so much to say. But before we get too heavy, before we start rolling up our sleeves and peeling under the hood on all things Donnie Darko, Laurel, do your thing. Well, uh, first things first, make sure you follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. 
Everything else that you need from the Midnight Myth you can find on our website, midnightmyth.com. You'll find a link to our Patreon and our merch store there. I do want to take just a couple of seconds to reflect on the fact that uh, Derek and I live and record in Philadelphia, and obviously things uh, it's been a very trying and uh, difficult week for a lot of people in Philadelphia after the police shooting of Walter Wallace Jr. Uh, so one thing that I want to do before we start is just to reiterate that Black Lives Matter um, and the loss of uh, of this man who was dealing with psychological disability uh, at the hands of the police is a true tragedy and something that we we hate seeing again and again and again. Uh, and we hate seeing in our own city. So I will post a couple of links in the show notes for things that you can support, but the biggest thing I'm gonna ask of you is that you please, please vote if you are in the US. If you haven't voted yet, you have a couple more days to do it. It's so important that we shout loudly at the polls that Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and if you've already voted or you have your voting plan in place, find a few friends and make sure they do as well and tell your friends that they do because Voting's not enough in this one. We all have to participate in whatever way that's comfortable. If you have a few extra dollars and we're thinking about buying Midnight Myth swag, don't do it this month. Give it to a candidate who's running in an election that can hopefully change things for the better to have a more fairer, freer, safer, more secure, less COVID, less racist America. Yep, or give it to your local charity bail fund to stand in solidarity with uh, people who are protesting injustice. Uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Good call out. I love everyone who's listening to this podcast, and I love Donnie Darko. Let us start with our signature Midnight Myth briefest of brief recaps. Well, similar to Rocky Horror Picture Show, this movie is pretty unrecapable. It's something that you must really see to experience and it is a very complex movie. The general gist is a young teenage Donnie Darko living in 1988, 28 days before Halloween, is awoken in the middle of the night and taken to a golf course where he meets Frank, a man in a demonic bunny suit who prophesizes in 28 days the world is going to end. When Donnie Darko makes his way back home, we find a mysterious jet engine that did not seem to come from a jet crashed into the Darko residence in Donnie Darko's room, and the fact that Donnie Darko was on the golf course talking to Frank about the end of the world has presumably saved his life. The rest of the movie follows Donnie Darko through the next 28 days, where he does a few different acts of seemingly random violence, where he floods the school <clears throat> with an uh, axe to a water main, and he burns down a local author-slash-public-speaker-slash-motivational-speaker um, burns his house only for the firefighters to discover that he is a pedophile. Donnie Darko also meets a young teenager named Gretchen, and they have a budding romance. The movie culminates in Halloween, where Donnie Darko, presumably figuring out the riddles of time travel through a book given to him by a teacher. God, this movie's so insane. There is so much in this movie. The book is called The Philosophy of Time Travel, written by Roberta Sparrow, ex-teacher at the Middlesex school where Donnie attends, who is also known as Grandma Death because she is just old and decrepit and just goes and opens the mailbox and closes the mailbox over and over again. In this, Donnie and Frank start to figure out the plan for Donnie to build a time machine to go back in time, presumably to stop the world from ending. At the party on Halloween, Donnie Darko, his girlfriend, and his two best friends decide they're going to go to Roberta Sparrow's house. There, at Roberta Sparrow's house, he encounters two of the local bullies who are trying to rob the rumored gem collection that Roberta Sparrow is hoarding. The bullies end up throwing Gretchen, the girlfriend, onto the, the road, and they end up pinning Donnie Darko down with a knife in which Donnie Darko whispers deus ex machina as a Pontiac Firebird approaches and runs over his girlfriend, killing her. The driver on the car was Frank in the same bunny rabbit suit. Donnie Darko pulls a gun and shoots Frank in the eye, telling the passenger in the car, who's dressed as a clown, to go home and tell his mom everything's going to be okay. Donnie takes Gretchen's body, steals his sister's car, and goes to a little sort of hill scenic view where we start to see a black tunnel open up in the sky. 
This tunnel ends up sucking in the jet engine, which Donnie's mother and sister are on the plane coming back from their tournament in sparkle motion. Because, you know, sometimes we all doubt our commitment to sparkle motion. And this is the very same jet engine that collapses on Donnie's um, home in the beginning of the movie. We then see Donnie Darko transported 28 days back in time in his bed, laughing gaily, for lack of a better term, as the jet engine collapses and kills him. We then see a montage of all of the characters that we see in the movie waking up as this happened, as if remembering but kind of forgetting the events of the 28 days that were and then were never were. The last shot is of Gretchen, now alive on October 2nd, 28 days before Halloween, who waves to Donnie Darko's mom as she smokes a cigarette and cries at the tragic death of her son. And that's about that. And I left out like 75% of the movie. But you got so much of it. I'm very impressed. And we should say, Derek was recapping the theatrical version. That's what we're going to talk about on the podcast. We're only going to really stick to the theatrical cut. There may be moments when we refer to the director's cut for some context, but... Uh, Derek, I don't believe you've seen the director's cut, have you? I have not. I have seen the director's cut a number of times, and I love it, but I do see like tremendous value in both versions of it. Really, the director's cut just provides additional context from Roberto Sparrow's book, as well as some extended scenes and a little extra imagery. So there may be some times when that's relevant to bring in, but we're not going to assume that you've seen it. Uh, we're just going to assume that you've seen the theatrical cut for our discussion tonight. But great recap. Thank you. Donnie Darko is a very dense movie. There's a lot of plot. There's a lot of character development. And there's a lot left unexplained, um, including what the heck happens at the end. Though there are many clues as to how to unravel it, and there's many theories on what this movie, what happens from a plot mechanic standpoint, it then leads to the bigger and more interesting question is, what, if anything, did this movie mean? Now, this movie came out in 2001, and it has a huge, rabid fan base, and many people have tried to kind of unparcel the riddles of Donnie Darko. So we're going to discuss some of those theories tonight, and then obviously add our own Midnight Myth version. But before we get into what happens in this movie, in particular in the end, and how to interpret it, you know, it came out in 2001. Here we are, October 31st, 2020. It's been a long time. The world that Donnie Darko inhabits, 1988 America, feels like, at least to me, ancient history. And much of this movie is a social commentary on late 80s, early 90s America. What do you think? Does this movie hold up? Before I uh, strictly answer that question, I just want to take a step back and reflect on the incredible year for movies that 2001 was. There are a number of movies that are like genuinely in my top five or top 10 favorites ever that came out that year. We're talking Moulin Rouge, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Amelie, which is probably my favorite movie of all time, Donnie Darko, Spirited Away, both The Fellowship of the Ring and The Sorcerer's Stone came out that year. Like it was insane the amount of incredible movies that came out in 2001. So I just want to recognize that because we've talked about like 1999 as an exceptional year for movies before, but incredible how many really unique, really artful, really uh, of their moment movies came out in 2001. And then you step back too, and you think about Richard Kelly, the writer director of Donnie Darko, who was 24 years old when he made this movie, and it's kind of mind-blowing. So what I'll say is Donnie Darko's been very important to me for a very long time. It's one that I saw on DVD and not in theaters, which I think is an experience that a lot of people had, Um, but it, it blew me away from the first instance. And then I saw the director's cut in theaters, and it spoke to me on a very visceral level. A lot of that is because I was really drawn to the kind of indie, quirky mind fork, for lack of a better term. Uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind was a favorite of mine. I love Twin Peaks. I love movies that make me work really hard and have really ambiguous endings. Those really work for me. But it was also speaking to um, a lot of my adolescent search, uh, and I could see a lot of myself in Donnie Darko. 
So I would love to say that the movie holds up. I think it still has a ton of mystery. I think no matter how many times I've seen it, I still have to grapple really difficultly, sorry, that's not really a word, with what it means. Uh, and that is a, a valuable experience for me. And I still love the characters and the performances. And oh my God, the music. So for me, I would say that it does hold up. What about you? Yeah, it's hard for me to objectively analyze whether this movie holds up because my nostalgic goggles are really, really thick on this one. This movie spoke to me like it did to you. This is a movie like many people in, you know, sitting around with your friends. The parents aren't there. Maybe you're sneaking in a toke of marijuana or you're <laughs> swiped a beer from your father's, you know, beer fridge and you're passing around with your friends and someone pulls out the DVD is like, I've got a movie we should all watch. And you all watch it and it blows your mind. And Donnie Darko was certainly one of those movies that me and my friends experienced in a very similar way. And it meant a lot. I don't know if it thematically holds up or not. I really don't. The acting is amazing. The director is fantastic. The score and the music is great. It certainly touches a zeitgeist within a generation, but I don't know if it extends beyond that. And I say that just ignorantly. I honestly don't know. I don't know. I've got some second cousins who are now just coming to age. I don't know if they put if they were to watch Donnie Darko, if they'd be like, whoa, this movie's amazing, or they'd be like, this is kind of corny. I honestly don't know what people think about this movie who didn't have the experience that I had watching it. I suspect Donnie Darko speaks to a specific time and a specific audience, but I honestly don't know. I could be totally wrong about that too. I think that's a really valid perspective. Um, and, you know, we have to think about it too, that this movie came out when it did, it came out in 2001, but it was about 1988. It was already a period piece. Even though that is a short gap of time, that's only if, you know, that's only just a little over a decade. But the difference between uh, what it was like to be under, you know, Reagan and Bush is very different than it was to be under uh, Clinton and Bush when you're growing up. So I think that there is. Uh, some of your perspective that you're bringing, I don't know if if the current generation is going to have the same experience of it, I think is super valid, but we also have to think about how it was already critiquing a time past and trying to do that through the lens of what it was like to be a youth of today. Um, the other thing to note about the release is that it came out in October of 2001. So this movie was made, this movie was produced pre-9-11 and then was released weeks after 9-11. And it's about a jet engine falling from the sky and crushing someone's home. So this, uh, you know, this horrible tragedy, the horrible tragic events that happened on September 11th uh, in New York really colored the box office performance of the movie. Uh, it failed miserably at the box office. It was a huge flop and then really only caught on in DVD sales through word of mouth and then in other countries like the UK, it did fairly well. And that's why it got a director's cut release. And that's why it has this cult fan base. So there's something, too, about the um, about exactly when it came out, that it was so such bad timing, but it was also speaking to a very, very specific cultural moment. So I think that that perspective that you've brought in about uh, exactly who you were when you saw this, having a lot to do with how you feel about it is really, really interesting. Yeah, and let me give you one specific example. The first line of dialogue is Donnie Darko's sister at dinner saying, I'm voting for Dukakis. Right. It's the very first line. And so this movie is happening, right, like now, right on the precipice before an election. And I think, like, if you're in a family of people voting for Trump and you're the lone person voting for Biden and probably vice versa, you're not bringing that up to your family. Why? Because you don't want to kill each other at the dinner table. Yeah, or if you do bring up bring it up to your family, you're doing so with the full knowledge that you're about to like bring out fisticuffs. You're about to get into a huge political fight. Like That was a time when, yes, politics mattered, and yes, people debated presidents, but it wasn't as partisan, and nor was it as vitriolic in America 
as it is now. And I look at that first line and be like, oh, that was cute. Remember when families could like politely disagree about politics around the dinner table? Yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. Right. And just the idea of apathetic youth, too, feels like a really distant idea because we're seeing uh, the younger generations like Gen Z and the future uh, the future generations of leaders of our country and of the world are the loudest, most uh, incredible and admirable activist voices out there. So it is a very, very different world. Uh, and it's speaking to a very different kind of adolescence. Yeah, the idea of the like younger Gen X, older millennials had an experience very much like what Donnie Darko goes through. I don't know if teenagers do, and I honestly just don't know. And I suspect because it is a new generation and every generation is different, that it's different. And maybe it won't speak to them, which in that respect, though still speaking directly to teenage Derek and adult Derek, and I have so many nostalgic lenses and I 100% believe it holds up. I wonder if it does, but then I think we're putting the cart a little before the horse on this too. Let's really jump into analysis. Yeah. And if you're Gen Z and you're listening and you've seen Donnie Darko, tell us what you think about it. I'm actually really curious now after this intro conversation. Yeah. So Donnie Darko, what the heck? What is this movie about? Where do we even begin? I called it an enigma. It is the Gordian knot of mind-forking early 2000 movies, more so than I think any other movie this one still has so much that we could analyze and unpack, but really, what do you think this movie is saying? What's our entry point? Well, let's try breaking through that Gordian knot with an axe like it's a water main in the middle of a school, shall we? Uh, I think, you know, in the conversations that we've had leading up to this podcast, we have talked about how there are really three strands of... Um, of analysis that kind of run through the movie. We've talked about how there is an angle that uh, is deeply embedded in science fiction and uh, theoretical physics and time travel. There is also an angle that is uh, mystical and metaphysical and religious to an extent. And then there is an angle that is uh, dealing with that, what we've just been talking about in this intro, that adolescent angst, especially in the context, the very specific context of 1980s conservative family values and upper middle class suburbia. So those three angles, the science fiction, the pseudo-religious, and the suburban alienation. Uh, and it's, it's, they're all really interesting to pursue on their own. And I think we can do some of that in our conversation about it. But what I'm really interested in is why are all three of those things in the same movie? Are they unrelated or are they intricately and inextricably intertwined? All right. So I, I think we should, because I think you're, you're referencing our conversations we had in preparation. So I think we should flesh out where we got to in terms of A, what fans say happens in the movie and be the theories around them. Great. So let's go with theory one, the tangent universe. This is largely fleshed out more textually in the director's cut where we get to see more of the philosophy of time travel. But essentially, this interpretation suggests that there is a wormhole in which time is um, kind of in flux. And that event which brought down the uh, jet engine created a pocket reality where Donnie Darko is still alive when he should have died in that accident. This pocket reality is very unstable. It is a parallel dimension to the real reality. And Donnie Darko's job through the um, intervention of time traveling Frank is to end this pocket universe so the real universe can happen. And the only way Donnie Darko can do that is if Donnie Darko returns, travels through time, and then through the wormhole and ends up dying, erasing the last 28 days from history and ending the pocket universe. In this respect, the pocket universe has been clipped. This parallel universe has been ended. Think of um, the movie Endgame, 
when um, you have the Incredible Hulk talking to the Sorceress Supreme, and they talk about clipping the branches of time. This tangent universe is a branch in time in which Donnie Darko's self-sacrifice clips it and it ends it. That's one interpretation. And by far online of the Donnie Darko diehard fans, that's the most popular interpretation. I don't know if it's the right one, but it certainly is the most popular. And the director's cut does tend to lean heavily on that. Absolutely. The director's cut, like you said, gives out a whole bunch of those um, contextual clues from Roberta Sparrow's book, The Philosophy of Time Travel, also throwing in tons of details like the manipulated dead in Frank, the manipulated living, and the living receiver in Donnie. Those details don't necessarily matter um, to our conversation, but I think you summed that up perfectly in the endgame uh, parallel is really, really good. So if you want like just some help with understanding Donnie Darko. Just watch that scene with the Hulk and the uh, Sorcerer the Supreme. One, the yeah, ancient the ancient one. one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that that really ties it up nicely, and that really is the science fiction way of reading this. Uh, that's pretty like it's it's pretty free of plot holes. Like there's definitely plot holes, but it works. It it ties it up nicely. The other interpretation is that Donnie Darko is a Christ-like figure who is invoking mystical powers, such as being able to see into the future, being able to have supernatural strength, the way he drives the axe into the bronze statue, and that as a Christ-like figure, he is grappling with three temptations, drugs as personified through the smoking, drinking as personified through drinking alcohol, and premarital sex. These are the same three temptations that are listed by, oh my God, I forget the character's name, Patrick Swayze's character. Oh, yeah, Jim Cunningham. Jim Cunningham as the sort of righteous, um, you know, leader of this like really bizarre fear, love binary system. And when he speaks to the school, he lists these three temptations and Donnie Darko succumbs to them all. The devil succumb, tempts Donnie, tempts Christ with three temptations before Christ, you know, takes his role as the savior in the Bible. And in the movie theater, when they go to see Evil Dead, the double feature is Evil Dead and The Last, and the last temptation, temptation of Christ. Christ. Yeah. And Donnie Darko learning to sacrifice to save everyone else who would presumably perish is the main theme. The main takeaway is Donnie Darko is a Christ figure. That's the second interpretation of the movie. Um, if I don't know if you have anything you want to add. Oh, just the destruction of the school and Jim Cunningham's house could be read actually as a parallel of uh, Christ in the temple of the uh, the den of thieves, right? When he's tearing apart the temple where the, the money lending is happening. Yeah. So Jesus Christ in the New Testament rides a donkey into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and he turns over the altar um, decrying that the Jewish priests there were really just they were the Pharisees. They were politically corrupt. All they cared about was money. They didn't really care about holy or spiritual deeds, something that Jesus did according to the New Testament. And yeah, you could read these acts of destruction as Jesus's act of destroying that altar. Absolutely. Yeah. And calling out the hypocrisies of, the, of, of those who pretend to be these self-righteous, sanctimonious religious figures. Yeah, but who are really in it for money and their own, like, highly illegal and really deviant pedophilia. Really bad, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so that's another interpretation that exists out there. And yet the third is that Donnie Darko is severely mentally ill and dealing with suburbia 1980s apathy so bad that it drives him into pure schizophrenia. And this movie is how he succumbs to the schizophrenia. And all of this is happening in Donnie Darko's mind. And Donnie Darko commits suicide at the end of it to end the pain. And this is all between that same one night, October 2nd, where Donnie Darko descends deeply into madness, imagines this whole other 28 days in his schizophrenia, and kills himself in his sleep. Ooh, I actually haven't heard that interpretation uh, out loud before. Like I've I've thought about you know what what is the version of this where this is all happening in Donnie's mind, but I haven't heard it articulated that way. That's really interesting. Um, but at any at any rate, 
Uh, there are those three different interpretations of what literally happens, but there are also three kind of thematic angles you can take to look at the movie. Like, what's the dominant theme here? Is it science fiction? Is it religion and a search for God? Uh, or is it how do we handle the tremendous angst of being a teenager in upper middle class suburbia in the 80s? Uh, and what I'm most interested, like I said, uh, I'm most interested in why all of those things live side by side and how do they live side by side so harmoniously in Donnie Darko? Yeah, and I think the first two interpretations have the most textual evidence. Sure. Donnie Darko goes to his science teacher who explains the science, the theoretical science, the science fiction aspect of the movie to Donnie. And it gives us, that exposition gives us the the ability as the viewer to know that he's traveling through time, that this is a wormhole. There's also tons of Christ-like imagery. There's tons of things that line up with the Jesus metaphor. And clearly, Donnie Darko is not a mentally well individual even if he wasn't trapped in a tangent universe or being used as a secular new Jesus Christ by some divine power, he is definitely a disturbed person. Gretchen, his girlfriend has gone through incredible psychological trauma. The bullies in this town seem to be a little extra bully and they seem to delight in torture and pain. The teachers seem to be completely off their rocker, especially in Kitty with this obsession with Jim Cunningham and his self-help nonsense. So there does seem to be a major cultural rot at the center of this society that Donnie lives in, and that rot affects Donnie in very negative ways. So even if we don't think he kills himself in his sleep at the end of the movie, there's still a lot to the this place, Middlesex, Virginia, 1988, before the Bush-Dukakis election, before Halloween, is a really awful place. And there's a lot that this movie does to establish that. So the question being, why have and why make a movie with so many riddles? It's almost like the opposite of an academic essay. When I was trained to write academic essays in college, as many of us were, one of the things that my one of my great professors taught me is like, your, your ideas, your themes, they need to be like neon signs. It needs to be crystal clear what you're saying. No one should be able to misinterpret it because if you're writing it down academically to be peer-reviewed and shared, people need to know what you're talking about. This movie takes the opposite approach, I think. This movie says, we're not really going to say what this movie's about. And think of other like ambiguous endings in movies. For example, Inception. It's pretty clear what that movie's about. Stealing dreams and a dream heist. That's what the movie's about. What the ending means is up to interpretation. This movie, it's pretty clear what happens at the end. Donnie Darko travels through time. I think that's pretty the most literal interpretation. But why does he travel back in time? How does he travel back in time? Why was the tangent universe created in the first place? Why is Donnie Darko obsessed with science and God? Like, how are these things intellectually reconciled? Why is Frank wearing a bunny suit? Does 1980s America create the conditions that you need to have a wormhole? Do you need social and political and moral rot at the heart of your society so wormholes can appear? Is there a link between those? All of these are questions completely unanswered. Yeah, absolutely. I do happen to have a theory, and I've thought about this a lot. In most of the discussions around Donnie Darko, most folks that I happen to value their opinion on critical media analysis tend to criticize Donnie Darko and saying that the themes are competing and that because the themes are competing and it doesn't clearly say something, it's really hard to untangle and that the movie may intellectually collapse upon itself. And while I'm not going to say those who feel that way are wrong whole cloth, I think that's a fair interpretation, I'm going to offer a counter one. And I do think the themes, while on the surface can be contradictory, why have a world based solely in science fiction and theoretical physics, but also in a world that God might be intervening on behalf? After all, aren't those conflicts? And I think what we see is through the character Roberto Roberta Sparrow. Roberta Sparrow was a nun who quit being a nun and started teaching science and then wrote the book 
the philosophy of time travel, which Donnie gets and uses to kind of unravel things. So Roberta Sparrow represents both a religious institutionalist and an academic institutionalist in one character. She straddles this line. We see this echoed somewhat in the character Kitty, who says, I am both a parent and a teacher. And the idea that having experience in your foot in two different worlds can be of value. And because of that, Roberta Sparrow gets to be a mentor, albeit from afar and from the past, to Donnie Darko. But furthermore, where does she live? On the outskirts of town. She is apparently one of the wealthiest members of the community. How does she live? In squalor, not spending her riches on lavish, huge houses bigger than she needs. And because of this, she represents a societal outcast. She represents someone who is not participating in the upper middle class, upper class, 80s Reagan Bush era. She's someone that is giving a symbolic middle finger to the entire community and their values while she at the same time is embracing at least symbolically, if not literally, because the character has no voice really in the movie. She doesn't say anything except everyone dies alone. And she says that in a whisper to Donnie Darko. And that statement suggests that maybe the universe is cold and ruthless and hostile and indifferent. But yet she was at one point a nun and gives Donnie Darko the tools he needs to self-sacrifice for others, which is regardless of whether he's literally a Christ-like figure, is a Christ-like action. To choose yourself to die so others might live is an, and always will be an association with Jesus Christ. And if there's one thing that Donnie is suffering from in this movie that he can express and articulate time and time again is his lack of meaning. He sees little meaning in the exercises at school. He sees little meaning in the institutions that he is supposed to be around. He mocks the FDA for saying things like, so we're not supposed to tell someone what nobody knows and pokes holes in the logics of the adult world, expresses a justifiable angst and anger at this societal institution, yet he chooses to die to save it all, even though he finds, finds it meaningless, if not between meaningless and actually actively hostile towards his own interests. So Donnie Darko finds belief in self-sacrifice, which is all to say that through the character Roberta Sparrow, we can see both the scientific, both the religious and or mystical, as well as we can see a representation of a critique on 1988 uh, American cultural upper middle class values. And all of these things are mirrored by our protagonist, Donnie, in one way or another. And so to me, the search for science and the search for meaning and an expression of rage at the apathy of the status quo are not contradictory um, philosophical elements. In fact, they blend into one. Frederick Nietzsche famously wrote, God is dead. Now, Frederick Nietzsche was very hostile to organized religion, but Frederick Nietzsche was very open to other forms of religion in some of his writings. He praised the European Jewish community. He studied classicism and proudly proclaimed that he was a Dionysian spirit reborn. Frederick Nietzsche wrote an alternate Christ-like figure in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, creating a new secular religion. When Nietzsche was saying God is dead, he wasn't necessarily saying that this was a good thing, that the idea that belief had been killed, that magic had been killed from the world, and that you can somehow reconcile the search for hard objective reality with the search for abstract metaphysical meaning. And Donnie Darko's character synthesizes both of those extremes, like the polar spheres of love and fear, and finds himself in the middle between them, creating this union that also says, by the way, these you know neoliberalist cultural and economic values might get you a nice house, but it also leaves you dead inside. 
Ooh, so there's so much good stuff that you just threw down, and I'm really excited to pick up on some of those threads, and hopefully I won't let too many of them lie, because uh, I, I think the way that you have uh, have articulated the synthesis of those three thematic threads through Roberta Sparrow and Donnie is brilliant. The two of them really are kindred spirits, but they have had very different reactions to the perceived conflict of those three thematic threads that they have to live with. They have to live with the search for God, the search for scientific truth and meaning, and the suburban alienation. Everybody in that community does have to live with that, just like the movie has to live with all of those living inside of it. And Roberta Sparrow appears to have not coped well with that conflict. She was dedicated to the church, and then she lost her faith and found a new faith in science and wrote this incredibly mystical uh, book about time travel, this book about theoretical physics that is influenced by her, most likely influenced by her metaphysical experience um, and her understanding of the world as meaningful in a religious way. But now she's a recluse who does not speak to anyone except for Donnie Darko, and the only thing she says, like you said, is every living creature on this earth dies alone. She has spent the rest of her life uh, probably trying to reconcile the irreconcilable conflicts of her religious self, her scientific self, and herself as a member of the community. And so she is dealing, I think, with tremendous fallout from that. What Donnie does is pick up on what she's going through, empathize with it rather than just making fun of her, and in the end, writes her a letter. What does she want more than anything in the world? To find some mail in that mailbox so it's a proof that she's not alone. Donnie is in the same situation. He just wants proof that he's not alone, and he can search for that through the search for God, however you want to frame that, whether he's looking for someone in the sky actually looking down on him, or he's looking for a more abstract concept that lines up with that, or he's looking for proof that time travel can be real and you can make meaningful sacrifices and the world can be righted and can be uh, logical, or he's just looking for a companion like Gretchen. He's looking for a real relationship despite the fact that he is dealing with what he calls emotional problems, all he wants is some proof that he doesn't have to die alone, that there is some contradiction to the idea that every living creature does die alone. And he's looking for that through trying to interpret Grandma Death herself for Berta Sparrow. When Donnie first introduces the book to his family and says, you know, Grandma Death wrote a book, it's called The Philosophy of Time Travel, a really interesting line happens. Donnie's sister goes, what does philosophy have to do with time travel? And I pause and I meditate because I think that's a very instructive line to understanding this movie. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, Because if we could navigate through time, we would need a philosophy of time travel. We would need to know what does it mean? How do we do it? And what are the consequences of doing it? And in many ways, we're seeing Donnie Darko work out his own philosophy of time travel. If I can ta travel through time, it better be to help others, not myself. Right? And that is the philosophy that he lands on. So whether Donnie Darko gets psionic abilities and uses telekinesis to rip the jet engine through the wormhole, or that's just an accident that happens... And whether or not he has super strength are all irrelevant. What is relevant is that when confronted with the strange and unusual, bizarre and the hostile, philosophy is the tool that you can try to organize it, understand it, and hopefully learn from it and teach others to learn from it. Philosophy has everything to do with time travel. And that's the answer there. And so when people are like, you know, this movie doesn't say anything because it says too much, it's just like, hold on. When did saying too much equate to saying nothing? That is philosophically and logically inconsistent. This movie says a lot, and it's up to us to make sense of it just because the world throws tons at us. The universe throws tons at us. We are all living in an era where God is dead. 
And we're all trying to figure out what that means. Whether you're of the camp that God is dead and we need to revitalize God at any cost, or whether you're in the camp that God is dead and we should just be secular automatons for, you know, the greater good, wherever you fall in this argument I'm just making up right now, you have to figure out meaning for yourself. And philosophy is the way to get the tools to try to understand the untreated strangeness of raw reality. I love it. Yeah, you can always count on me to bring up either Freud or Nietzsche in just about every single podcast. Or both, Friends and, of the Pod. And why I love philosophy and history. Absolutely. Which all history is, is the philosophy of the past, which is another way to say it's the philosophy of time travel. Nice. Uh, I want to offer a compliment to this because I also sort of formulated a theory as to how these three thematic threads of the religious, the theoretical science, and the suburban alienation can live together. And that's through one particular image that suffuses this movie. And that's the image of the rabbit. I get excited about talking about rabbits because I love rabbits. Um, but one of the key reasons that I love rabbits is that my favorite book of all time is Watership Down, uh, written by Richard Adams. And Richard Kelly, the writer-director of Donnie Darko, shares my love of Watership Down. And if you've seen the director's cut, you know that after Graham Greene's The Destructors, the short story that Donnie is reading in his English class is banned. Uh, they read Watership Down instead, and they watch the movie, the animated movie about rabbits that traumatized a generation because it is so bloody and so violent among the rabbits. But I think that the rabbit is a really interesting cultural symbol that has so many different interpretations that actually kind of serve as a similar um, keystone like Roberta Sparrow in the story. Obviously, Frank is a giant bunny rabbit, a man in a giant menacing demonic bunny rabbit suit. And he is the, uh, he's the character who brings about the, ex the inciting incident. He lures Donnie out of his home to a golf course in the middle of the night so that Donnie is not present when the jet engine crashes into his house. Rabbits have a very strong uh, relationship to the religious and to the folkloric. I'm sure everybody listening knows that rabbits are a symbol of the holiday Easter in the Christian tradition. There is a strong link between, uh, between rabbits and Christ. They are often a symbol of fertility and a symbol of innocence. And there are several religious and folkloric traditions that feature uh, a symbol of three rabbits or hares in a circle, kind of chasing each other's tails. And that can have various interpretations. In the Christian tradition, it'll represent the Holy Trinity, but it might also represent the circle of life, or it might represent uh, life, death, and rebirth, as we would say. Um, then in the folklore of North America, rabbits tend to take on a trickster role. So especially in the tales of Br'er Rabbit, which evolved out of African-American folklore with possible parallels to Cherokee folklore as well, uh, that's a character who becomes this uh, trickster who doesn't have a lot of like strength, doesn't have a lot of physical strength, but has wit and cunning and intelligence and uses that to outwit and outsmart predators and outwit wolves and foxes and coyotes and those who would harm Br'er Rabbit. If you've never read any of the tales of Br'er Rabbit, you can honestly look at Bugs Bunny, who definitely pulls from the template and uses his brain and uses his intelligence and uses uh, wit and humor often to uh, outwit Elmer Fudd and anyone who might be trying to overtake him with brawn instead of brains. Uh, and you can definitely see why enslaved people in the U.S. might have told these stories about a character who's able to get out of oppressive situations just using their smarts. Uh, so it's really kind of incredible to see the evolution of the rabbit to take on this trickster tale. And Watership Down will pick up on that thread as well by having a whole mythology created around rabbits as the original trickster deities. Rabbits also have a role in theoretical physics. Sometimes the word rabbit hole is used interchangeably with wormhole when specifically talking about hopping between different dimensions or realities. So we can talk about jumping down the rabbit hole to another world. 
And of course, that's drawing from Alice in Wonderland more than anything. And then lastly, if you think about rabbits in the context of the suburban landscape, what are rabbits but pests, right? They tear up your lawn. If you're thinking about um, Peter Rabbit, the Beatrix Potter tales, they'll steal from your garden. They'll steal your lettuce and carrots. Uh, they're tearing up your yards. They dig these rabbit holes and rabbit warrens that completely destroy the landscape and sort of forge a kind of rot underneath the grass that can't be seen, but you can't do anything with that land once they've destroyed it. And I think all of those sort of symbolic representations of the rabbit, while we see them literally in Frank, who is the bunny character, uh, we also see a lot of them reflected in Donnie. I think he's a trickster. I think he's a gadfly. He's a fly in the ointment. So he's on this search for God, this search for meaning, and uh, whether that's religious or just some metaphysical uh, abstract search, but he's also jumping down rabbit holes, trying to understand the philosophy of time travel. He is the personification of suburban adolescent angst, and he is the one pointing out the rot underneath the perfectly manicured lawn. He's a disruptor. He speaks up to sycophants and to Pharisees. He jumps up at an assembly and says, I think you're the effing antichrist to uh, Jim Cunningham. Uh, and he burns down or destroys the symbols of hypocrisy. He does this in a way that brings together that search for meaning, that uh, suburban pest, suburban disruptor, and that person who is uh, inquiring into the inner workings of the universe. And I think that somehow the rabbit pulls that together in a really interesting symbolic fashion. Uh, Watership Down, I'll just reference one more time, also features the character of Fiverr, who is very much a, um, he's a Cassandra figure. He's a rabbit who has precognition and has visions of the future. And he, he sees the end of the world, essentially. He sees the destruction of their home. Uh, and tries to give this prophecy to the rabbits around him, and most of them ignore him. So much like Frank is this inciting figure who says, I'm, I'm telling you when the world is going to end, and Donnie is the only one to listen. We also have this parallel in the prophetic rabbit. Yeah, definitely. There's also the father figure when they're in the hotel who has a sort of like prophecy. He tells the story about someone he knew growing up who knew he was going to die and that he had this feeling like death is right around the corner. He kind of becomes a bit of an Oracle. And one of the other themes, the one of the conversations that Donnie has with the science teacher, uh, Mononoff, I believe his name is, is that when Donnie realizes that these spears coming out of the chest are literally giving him a visual manifestation of the future, so that he can see things that will be that have not yet happened. The um, teacher says the old fashioned line about prophecies that, Hey, if you could see your destinies manifest visually, you would then have the ability to change those destinies. And Donnie's retort is not if you travel in God's channel. And this says a few different things. One, it reminds me of Oedipus an Oedipus Rex who gets a visual manifestation of his future. Well, not visual, but he gets told a prophecy and says, now that I am armed with this prophetic knowledge, I'm going to be able to choose to not do it and ends up setting everything in motion to make sure the prophecy actually comes true. This is very similar to what Donnie Darko is saying that like, and the idea that there are channels is that there are multiple ways that things could happen, but there's only one true way and if you are seeing the true future, you are seeing God's plan. And if you can see God's quote-unquote plan, you don't actually have a choice. And in this way, the movie does get a little complicated because it, we have to ask ourselves, does Donnie choose to sacrifice himself or is he just enacting the will of the higher power? And the movie doesn't clearly answer that. But I don't think it clearly answers it it avoids clearly answering it because um it lacks intellectual ingenuity or it lacks philosophical courage or honesty i think it's because the questions unfreaking answerable 
Yeah. Nobody has the answer. And Donnie Darko and most of us go through our journey through life not really knowing the answer to the problem of free will. Like, listen, if St. Augustine can't figure it out, neither can the Midnight Myth, and neither can the writer-director of Donnie Darko. But the question is, you know, does it tell a compelling story? And the answer is unequivocally yes. I'm glad you brought this up because we we also, we look at the things that Donnie does in the weeks leading up to the end of the world or his sacrifice, uh, and we see him manipulated like a puppet by Frank. And we see the words, they made me do it, uh, graffitied outside of uh, of the mongrel that he uh, digs the axe into after flooding the school. So there's this sense that Donnie is not in control of his actions, but that these acts of destruction are uh, a part of setting the conditions and preparing uh, for the sacrifice that he is going to make. We do, however... I think get the feeling that Donnie's sacrifice is uh, self-motivated. I think we are led to believe that Donnie has grown as a character and has come to uh, come to feel like the superhero that his name would uh, suggest that he is, uh, and that he kind of needs to do this in order to achieve that uh, search for meaning and that search for a relief from loneliness. Uh, the final, you know, the letter that he writes to Roberta Sparrow, he says something along the lines of, I hope when the end of the world comes, I can smile and let out a sigh of relief because there will be so much to look forward to. And we see him laughing in his bed as he awaits his own destruction. I think we are led to believe that he truly reaches some sort of apotheosis, some sort of transformation and uh, truly self-motivated sacrifice. That's because de- destruction is a form of, of creation. creation. Yeah. And this is a fundamental truth that is both poetically true. It is both speaking to the teenage boys that just want to burn the world down. It's also speaking quite literally about how physics works. You know, the Big Bang was a destructive act and it created the universe, right? So destruction and creation. And destruction as a form of creation is one of the earliest philosophical themes introduced. And it goes and it continues to go Donnie Darko's own sense of destruction when he says, I have so much to look forward to. You could say, oh, maybe he's going to ascend into heaven. But maybe it's like, hey, I've got something to look forward to to create another pocket universe that has all of these opportunities and these people that I love who are going to get to live now that I have been destroyed, is another way to interpret it. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, I think we get some pieces of evidence in the lead up to this that Donnie is changing, that Donnie is becoming uh, a more open person and someone who is uh, empathetic and relates to people around him. He's always kind of had that impulse, but usually is rather reclusive along the Roberta Sparrow lines. Uh, But the moment that he has with Sharita... Uh, I think is really telling for him as a character near the end of the movie. Shut up. Shut up. Um, I love her. She's so sweet. And I love her Autumn Angel performance. I think it's beautiful. Um, But Donnie encounters her in a hallway. She's been bullied throughout the film by his own friends. And he takes her by the earmuffs and says, one day everything's going to be better for you. And she runs away, leaving her books in the hallway. And you can see that she has scribbled his name on one of her books with a heart. And he's really moved by that. And he ends up wearing her earmuffs. And it's such a touching moment uh, that drives home that this character actually doesn't just care about his own search for meaning anymore. He doesn't just care about making sure he doesn't feel alone. He actually wants to tell another person who is having a really tough go of high school that it's going to be okay. And doing that is probably a really transformative thing for her, I would like to think. Uh, so I just wanted to call that moment out and and just give some light to like why that character, why Sharita is in this, because that's a person that Donnie does a small but selfless act of kindness for, and that portends the large selfless act of kindness he's about to do. Can I ask you a question doubling back to the destruction as a form of creation theme? Yeah, please. Maybe it's because you and I are on the verge of parenthood and, you know, we're changing 
our house. We're changing the way we live. It will change the way we live. And I think of, is there some danger in telling a bunch of teenage boys that? Now, I can tell you, there's nothing that teenage Derek would have liked more than being like, oh, yeah, destruction's a form of creation. Good, I can keep destroying things. Awesome, because I like breaking things and doing destruction. And most of that is just like unfounded, misplaced teenage rage that ultimately means nothing. And thank God I grew out of. But is there some risk? In other words, maybe Kitty has a point that, you know, teaching children that destruction and creation have a link can potentially arm someone with a justification to do an act of destruction that doesn't lead to creation. Cause clearly on a literal level, destruction can lead to creation. Donnie Darko floods the school. He gets to walk Gretchen home. They create a romance that destruction leads to creation. Donnie Darko, uh, burns down the house. Then the, uh, kitty porn dungeon is discovered and it creates a new way to look at Jim Cunningham, which is as a Pharisee, as a pervert, as someone who is despicable. Creates a pathway to justice, yeah. It literally also creates the conditions by which the jet engine could then go through because Kitty, in her lostness, decides that she's going to defend a pederast over escorting her children to the Sparkle Motion dance celebration. You know, and so like, and but I, so the movie does link destruction and creation, but is there some danger in teaching people that? Because while that is true, destruction can also just lead to destruction. You know, and I think of, we mentioned at the start of the podcast, the fatal shooting here in Philadelphia. It's like, that's not leading to creation. That's just destruction. Maybe it'll lead to creating better rules and regulations around police, but there's not a lot of hope that that will happen because how many times has it happened? So sometimes destruction can just lead to destruction. Is there any danger in that message in this movie? I'm really glad that you asked that question and it's huge and it's something that we could spend hours and hours and hours discussing, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the relationship between media and justification for violence, uh, because that's kind of what we're talking about here. We're talking about destruction as a form of creation uh, that line is used in this movie because uh, Donnie's English class is reading Graham Greene's The Destructors, and that's an interpretation of that short story. And it gives me a chance to talk a little bit about Drew Barrymore's character, the English teacher. And Drew Barrymore is one of the reasons that this movie was actually made because her production company picked it up uh, when nobody else wanted to with a 24-year-old director. So thank you, Drew Barrymore, for the gift that you have given us. But... With regard to your question about is it responsible to introduce this idea to young people, I think that what the I think that what the purpose of that story is in introducing it to Donnie and his classmates is a form of meeting the students where they're at. Because let's face it, when you are a teenager, you want to burn things and you want to change things and you want to destroy you tend to have more anger and more intense emotions and less logic. It's just true. I was like that. Uh, and I like to think that I have become more logical, but I can still very much see the kind of anger and intense heightened emotions that I was able to access as a youth. Uh, so those things are kicking around in you. And Reading something like Graham Greene's The Destructors that gives you that interpretation, I think, can be edifying. And I don't think we should, uh, I don't think we should ever blame media for inciting uh, that kind of uh, reaction to it. I think that we have to meet people where they are at uh, with the kind of literature that we introduce to them, because it also allows. Um, you know, this idea that creation and destruction can live side by side and can be can both be productive is an abstract uh, concept that once you learn to reconcile can really help you be a healthier person, I think. Uh, so I don't know if I answered your question satisfactorily, but I don't think Kitty Farmer is right. I think we can trust our young people to understand irony uh, I think we can trust them to understand those abstract concepts. And I think that 
uh, meeting them in the throes of the intense emotion that they feel is, like Drew Barrymore's character says, necessary for keeping them from being lost to apathy. Well said. Well said. I am totally satisfied. Okay, great. I just wanted to introduce yeah, that. I think you know, that's great. Because I don't think I don't think it's fair to say in a broad brush that creation and destruction are always linked. It's an interesting metaphor. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's something that has some absolute truth in terms of physical um in terms of physics, astrophysics. The universe was created out of destruction the way that stars collapse, create black holes, which then create gravity and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not an expert on all of this. So I probably sounded like a bit of, bit of an idiot above my head on astrophysics. But the idea that, yes, that, you know, creation and destruction can be physically linked in the material world and an interesting idea to play with, should this be something that we should teach young people? I think you're right. Young people are far more smarter and more capable than old people like to admit because we don't want to admit that we're old. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's nothing, I can't believe I said maybe Kitty was right. Now that I, now that after <laughs> no, your I answer. I think it's a really valid question that you brought up and I really appreciate the chance to kind of flesh that out. Because the PTA should never burn books. What else you got? Uh, that is all I got. I mean, I could talk about this movie for hours and hours, but uh, you know, we, we, I think have found some really interesting insights. I love Donnie Darko and I am, I, I still feel like it speaks to me, even though I'm not Donnie Darko's age anymore. Uh, it makes me feel uh, like I'm not so alone. And uh, I hope that other people have had the same experience with that movie or have had a similarly gratifying experience with the movie. Until next time, everyone stay committed to sparkle motion and be kind. And be kind. <laughs>